Um, hi, everyone. Firstly, welcome if you're on the call and welcome if you're listening to this later on the podcast. We've just uh, been talking. We're in competition with the legendary Mark Rowland over at Open Table. So uh, um, maybe you're, maybe there are folks there who are going to listen to this later um, and folks who will join us uh, as we have our little chat. So Gathering Space presents this month, which is September um, 2021, in case you're listening to this in, I don't know, June 2024, if you are, welcome to the past. Um, so we're chatting with um, Jarrell Robinson-Brown, father Jarrell Robinson-Brown now, because he's a father now, but not a, like, dad Dog father, church father, <laughs> an ordained minister. Um, Jarrell, welcome, first of all. Thank you. Thank you. It's really good to be here. And uh, we're talking to Jarrell because very recently, I think it was, was it just in August when the book was? Yeah. Um, July, August time? Miles. It felt like August, end of July, very end of July. So yeah, not long. Right. And the book is called, I love it, Black, Gay, British, Christian, Queer, The Church and the Famine of Grace. So we're going to talk through some of the things in it. I will make a massive confession now. I haven't finished it. I'm working on it. Uh, but I keep, look, I, it's turned into a Bible. I keep like, wow. underlining things. That's, <laughs> like, that's such a great point. I need to, I need to remember that. I need to write that down. So um, if you haven't bought it and read it, like I said, I haven't, I haven't finished it completely, but I'm loving uh, what I'm reading at the moment. So oh, wow. that's great. Wow. Yeah, look, we've got them on screen. People I have got them there. <laughs> literally we've all got them in front of it that's great <laughs> um so Joelle, let's just start off with the sort of premise of the book and i really get the sense from reading this and just from knowing you as well that you feel that anybody whichever identity or identities they fit into our stories are important is that sort of where you started and just just talk us through a bit about the process of how you went about sharing your story yeah sure I think that's definitely um, one of the angles I'm taking so for me um you know any anybody in the sense that anybody is welcome and should be welcome in the church but also anybody right any physical body should be able to be part of the body of Christ um and I think the one thing that I try to do with my theology is pay attention to the body because I think it's the one thing that we're taught to ignore so much so I pay attention in the book to Jesus's body um, and what it tells us and I try to pay attention also to our bodies and what our bodies tell us um, because I think particularly as LGBTQ plus Christians we're, we're kind of trained to ignore what our bodies tell us you know or to read what our bodies tell us as being bad or negative or untrue um, you know as though beneath all of that body stuff is our true selves and I want to kind of reverse that and say no actually I think I think our bodies help us do theology and that actually Jesus's body helps us do theology. Um, so when I think about grace, I try not to approach it as this theory, but I say, well, actually, if grace is about the unconditional love of God, um, then actually Jesus's body in terms of where he places his body, um, you know, what his body endures and encounters on earth, the other bodies he, he lives in intimacy with, um, tells us a lot about theology that I don't think we pay enough attention to. Um, so it's a book, it's, it's really a book about grace as opposed to a book about black queer lives, but it is a book about grace that is centering the black queer body um, in its kind of outworking of theology, if that makes sense. Um, so yeah. yeah, no, it totally does. And I, I want to, to 
uh, press you a little further on that. So you spoke a bit about LGBT bodies and us basically being trained not to trust them, if you like. Um, and I want to ask you because, you know, everyone knows me, I say I sit here actually not as a white woman, as an Anglo-Indian woman, but my skin is pale enough to pass as a white woman. Uh, for you, that's all you can't pass as a woman. Um, but, you know, you, 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 you're a black guy. Um, yeah. So just tell me a little bit about how that then layers on the top of what you've said about the mistrust of LGBT bodies. Mm. What does that relationship look and feel like to you when you add being black on top of that? Yeah, um, it adds a lot. I think it adds a different level of vulnerability. So someone asked me today, funny enough, in a different conversation, when you're in, when you're in an all white space, does being black feel more vulnerable than when you're in an all heterosexual space? And I said, yes, because, I mean, now if I walk into a room, people often know who I am and know about my sexuality, but I still in lots of spaces could choose to disclose that or not, right? I could choose to identify as gay or not. Um, and when I travel abroad where people don't know me so well, I can, I can choose to disclose that, but the blackness is there. <laughs> I don't, it, it discloses itself, right? Um, so I think I feel, in not more vulnerable in terms of race, but it is the thing that I think I can't do anything about. You know, I can't choose when people become aware of that or not. But then I think sexuality um, is what makes me feel more vulnerable in a way, because I think there are more spaces where the sexuality thing can, can lead to a different kind of violence. Um, you know, I don't feel like I worry so much about microaggressions in terms of sexuality, in terms of race, sorry, but I do in terms of sexuality and I do in terms of, you know, physical violence. Um, in the UK, I think it concerns me more um, when I think about my sexuality more than my race. So I live, for example, um, essentially in the city of London, but I'm, I'm more towards kind of Brick Lane, Aldgate East Side. Um, so my community is largely Bengali Muslim. Now, as, as a priest in this space, um, I'm kind of accepted and fairly safe here, but and my blackness is not an issue in this part of, of where I am. When I walk to where the church is, five minutes walk down the road, which is in the city, you know, mainly white folk, city gents in their suits, very different vibe. Um, you know, city of London police, again, very different vibe. Um, so in terms of sexuality where I live, I'm more vulnerable within this Bengali Muslim community because I know it would be a huge thing. Um, but in the city, it is the blackness that is more of an issue. So even like just walking from here to church, there is a shift in that dynamic when I become very conscious of one thing because suddenly there are no black folk, you know? Um, and there's no police here, which is where they probably need to be. <laughs> but in the city, they're <laughs> everywhere, like with their guns, with their dogs, with their horses, everywhere. And because it's the city, they want to be friendly. And I'm like, no, <laughs> like, you know, the uniform thing doesn't work for me. Um, and yet here in this Bengali Muslim community, my own uniform, communicate something very different. So there's a whole dynamic, which is really difficult to unpack. That was a very mm. cool answer to that question. <laughs> no, 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 that's fine. What I, what I wanted to come on to, because you're, the, one of the other words in this title is Christian. Mm. And again, that's something you can hide unless you're walking down the street with a collar on, which you yeah. do because you're a priest. Yeah. So how does that play out in terms of your physical 
identity as well because people i think i think people have preconceived ideas about what gay people are like preconceived ideas about what black people are like and preconceived ideas about what christian people are like and you're sort of all of those things and but physically all of those things as well so how does that play out in terms of your christian faith and the physicality of of being it's really funny. I think gender is a massive part of this as well, right? Because I walk down the road in a collar as a man. And so therefore people read, I think they read my body as Catholic, therefore as celibate and heterosexual, I think as well, which my female colleague wouldn't have in the same way. You know, she's definitely not going to be read as a Catholic and can't, can't be. Um, and I think that's, that's another dynamic. So even priesthood in terms of what it communicates by its uniform, is read differently depending on your gender. Um, and then that means that I also, I, I carry baggage that I can't even undo unless I get into conversation with people. So people will assume that, you know, they might even assume that I'm homophobic because of that, you know, the, the uniform of, of priesthood. You know, if you're being read as a Catholic because you're a man, that can come with all kinds of other things. Um, and I would say that there's very few opportunities to kind of, to queer that image actually in people's minds, except in conversation. And I couldn't do it safely here. I mean, if I was in a different part of London, you might, I might wear a rainbow badge on my suit or something, but I'm not gonna do that in the community that I live in. Um, the church that I'm a part of is historically known as um, one of the, the first gay churches in London in that the first openly gay church priest in the Church of England was the rector of St. Bottles, so where I am. The gay Christian movement began, so One Body, One Faith began in St. Bottles. Um, it was called the Prostitute Church way back because Jack the Ripper's victims were um, mainly around that church because there were lots of sex workers there. So it's had a very, you know, the, the church that I'm connected to has an interesting relationship too to sexuality and gender. Um, but that's something people don't know about me just walking to church on a, on a morning or an evening. Um, so yeah, the uniform, it communicates a lot that I can't do much about. Um, and that's something that I think is quite difficult, you know, and it's a tension that I live with. Um, but it is, yeah, it's tough. Yeah, definitely. The other um, two words in the title that I just wanted to touch on a bit is British and queer. Let's start with British. I just want to ask you why that appears in the title and what that because there's definitely an element of Britishness flowing through the text of the book as well. Um, so what, what does the Britishness have to say about you? I think um, that one of the things I realised in terms of trying to write the book was that everything I had read about race, sexuality and religion was from America. And it's great. I mean, and getting Pamela Lightsey, for example, to write the foreword was important for me. Um, because I wanted someone who was black and lesbian from a different context to be the person who wrote the foreword. Um, and that was important because I think there is, and she touches on it, which I, I hope she would have, and she did in the foreword, which is that the cultures are different and the histories are different. And so to do black queer theology within a British context comes with a lot um, of kind of trying to break open ground. You know, there are not many people I can think of I mean, I can't, I couldn't actually think of another book that brought those things together in that way um, from a British context. Um, 
because a lot of the people we look to in terms of our um, icons and idols as black queer people in, in the UK tend to be American. So, you know, you're thinking of James Baldwin, Audre Lorde, um, even people who might not be queer in their sexuality, but queer in identity, just someone like Nina Simone or um, even Toni Morrison in a way, I would say. Um, these people are all, all Americans. And then, you know, people like Kelly Brown Douglas or Emily Towns or Pamela Lightsey, they're all in the States. Um, and they're great, they do amazing work, but it doesn't translate completely. Um, and the other thing I think is that they've been doing this theology for a while in the States, you know, and we, we haven't been. Um, so I wanted that to be there to kind of identify the fact that um, this is about the UK context. And I try not to talk about what happens in the States, you know, too much. No, absolutely. And and the other word then, let's just pick up on it, is queer, which you, you've used a few times already since we've been talking. I use a lot in conversation, but that's a word that's got a lot of baggage attached to it. So um, maybe you'd like to offload some, some of its bags and help people understand it a little more in your context. Yeah. Well, it's funny because today is Biovisibility Day, right? I think. Uh, yes, it is. Um, and it's really funny because a friend, like two close friends of mine reading the book, were like, oh my gosh, we didn't realize that you were bisexual. And I was like, what? And they're like, we had no idea. And it's, it's a really interesting thing because that is, that is my identity in terms of, um, you know, my, my own reality. But there was so much pressure, I think, when I identified as that, for people to kind of say, well, you know, how long has it been since you dated a woman? Or, you know, when was the last time you did X, Y, or Z? And, you know, how do you, how do you relate to women or men? And, you know, which one do you prefer most? I'm like, for me, it's never worked like that. Um, and so I wanted to kind of push back on that. And part of the reason why I identify as gay is because I think for me, um, I couldn't put up with those questions so much. And a lot of people were kind of saying, well, um, presumably you call yourself bi because you're afraid of being called gay. So I'm like, no, I'm gonna own the gay thing. It doesn't bother me because it's equally true. Um, and I'm in a relationship with a man at the moment. So that for me is just an accurate description or whatever. Um, but I find that queer frees me from that need to really own a label. Um, and I think there's something for me, which I haven't reflected on enough yet, but there's something I think intricately connected um, between what grace should do for us and the notion of queer identity. So the way in which the queer, um, the queer identity can free us is precisely what I think grace seeks to do for us um, in Christ. That actually we, we have this freedom um, to have a kind of a sense of fluidity and to not need to be tied down to other people's understandings of what um, our own desire might be. Um, so I, I wanted that to be there because I thought it was important because it, queer is probably the label I carry most comfortably. Um, because of that sense of freedom it gives me, I think, you know, um, I get it, other people seem to get it and I don't need everyone to get it, it kind of just works. Yeah, no, I understand that. I used to, I used to like always identify myself as queer, yeah. and I never liked the gay label because I knew I was bisexual, or pansexual. But actually, now if someone calls me gay, I actually I don't care. Like I don't care because you know, a gay identity and a queer identity to me can be really interchangeable. So absolutely, yeah, I'm with you. Let's um pick up you've we've sort of mentioned a little bit about the church and how the church is kind of 
circumnavigating all of this kind of thing, the the the, the Christian element, the church element. I'm gonna I'm gonna quote you one of the things I underlined, as I Good said, again. I underline things in my book. But right. I think they just maybe help give us a bit of a jumping off point for for some conversation. The first one is really really early on in the book. Uh, where you, is this weird having people quote your book back at you? You must are you used it to is. it. I've got used to it. <laughs> oh yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, so. I think this phrase is so important and so important for us to understand. And you say, the Church of Jesus Christ today lives upon the propagation of a deep heresy that proclaims, when truly examined, a theology not of salvation by trust in Jesus Christ, but rather a salvation by faith, works and heteronormativity. Which I think is such a true, a sadly true um, statement. So... Maybe could you just expand a little on how the church has not helped in the celebration of all these identities we've been talking about, sort of race and, and sexuality and um, Britishness and all that kind of stuff. Like how, what, what's, where's the church gone wrong, Joelle? <laughs> how long we'll, come on, we'll come on to how we fix it, but let's just talk about where we've gone wrong so that we can, can we understand. Can go back to AD 312? <laughs> yeah, no, that's fine. Start there. <laughs> no, I'm joking. Um, Kind of, actually, not completely. But I think um, I think the church messed up massively when it when it kind of it read. What am I trying to say? The church messed up when it kind of condemned people who identify as non-heterosexual to hell, because actually that one identification of saying, you know, this is the direction in which my desire flows, and it, it happens to go in. The, the direction of someone who happens to have the same the same sex as me um at, at the point at which that happened the church decided that it knew everything there was to know about people's lives and that that was a kind of cutoff point between you know your ability to be saved or not and the problem with that is it just makes no sense because just because you identify um the direction of your desire doesn't say anything else about you except that you know and so what's happened is um whiteness has become synonymous with god um heterosexuality has become synonymous with you know um, holiness and purity um this affects things like our our politics as well though so you know to be to be black and politically radical um is to not be like jesus and yet if you look at the jesus of scripture he is he is a brown political body <laughs> um and the church has joined up all these things and kind of solidified them as doctrine almost because we've done it for so long but it just it makes no sense um and the problem is we've all been made to play along with it as though it makes sense and this is part of the problem with um things like the llf process is that we are we are still being encouraged to pretend as though this makes sense and it doesn't make sense um and it's a very sophisticated game because once you played along with something as though it makes sense um you it's very hard to stop and one of the things i think people need to do is stop playing ball with injustice and to stop stop doing you know this this kind of weird thing that the church wants us to do where we're kind of defending our existence when there's nothing to defend because the church knows nothing about us except for the fact that we're not straight you know um and I, I have a really big problem with that that actually the church thinks it knows about the queer community um and the lgbt plus community but it, it doesn't because it, it doesn't listen to us you know? I would almost go as far as to say, and you can disagree with me if you like, but I think that's true of black people as well. I think the church has, the, the white Anglican church has sought to speak for the 
black people in its pews without actually talking to them as well. Is that fair? Correct? It is, it is. And, and I think it's, I think there's also a difficulty in that actually, um, you know, one of the things people say they find weird about the book is that unlike lots of books that are anti-racist, um, my challenge and critique is not, is not of white people alone. It's actually a critique of black heterosexual people. Um, and then also white queer spaces, which are not inclusive. So that the lens is, is focusing in on all kinds of people at different times. Um, and one of the things I say, and which I mean, um, is that we all have a, a knee on someone's neck. It's very easy to point to one particular community and say, that's, that's where my oppression lies, but who are we oppressing? You know, and just because you experience oppression doesn't mean you don't have a knee on someone's neck. You know, I do things still like shop from Amazon. Um, I'm not the greenest person in the world. Um, you know, there's so many things that actually I could care more about. You know, I have three lamps on in this room right now. I don't need all three of them on. You know, that's costing someone somewhere. You know, and we can pretend as though this stuff doesn't, doesn't matter, but actually it does. I'm not a vegetarian or a vegan. Um, there's so many things. And, and it's so easy to be dishonest about the fact that we also oppress and are comfortable with it. You know, I have to live with that reality that because of my own life choices, other people suffer. And, I have to, and the reality is I'm okay with that suffering because if I wasn't, I would do something about it. And so even, even the black folk that the church don't listen to um, also have knees on someone's neck if they were honest about their own lives. And it's really hard to say that because you've become very used to this polarization, um, you know, white and black and straight and gay, but also it's more complicated than that, you know? Um, so, I mean, one good example, just to, sorry to, to put in. For those who know about the Church of England, we've had general synod elections, which is um, electing people to go and represent us um, at the decision-making body of the Church of England. And I'm in the Diocese of London, fairly diverse in terms of its population, not very diverse in terms of its clergy and not diverse at all in terms of its leadership. You know, we, we have a female bishop, which is wonderful. In terms of diversity beyond that, there is none, I think, actually, not now. Um, and... One of the things I found surprising was I was only able, I was not able to vote for any of the black people who stood for General Synod in the diocese. Um, and one of the reasons that that was the case was because although they spoke about um, diversity and inclusion, they were very unclear about where they stood on sexuality. And so this is one of these things where I, I, I love the fact that these people are standing, two of them were my friends, I wanted to vote for them. They, were, they spoke very passionately about equality, diversity and inclusion, but when it came to sexuality, there was not a word spoken. Um, and so this is where I, I'm putting to the fact that it's not simple. You know, I would love for there to be uh, more black people at General Synod, there, there needs to be. Um, but just because you're black doesn't mean you're necessarily for, for me, you know? Um, in the same way that just because you're part of the LGBT community doesn't mean you're for me. Um, and that was just a really interesting example for me of when these things get really difficult. <laughs> um, I think it's important though that people hear this and don't just assume that, oh, well, there's one gay chat there. So that means the entirety of the LGBT community is represented or there's one, there's one black vicar in a diocese. Therefore the entirety of, you know, all different races are represented yeah. entirely just because there's, 
you know, let's let's put it how it is. One black face on the website. It, do, yeah. it just doesn't work like that at all, right? Yeah. So let's talk about how we how we begin to unpick this and what we can do because we are small in number. There'll be a few more who listen. In fact, I know there'll be quite a few more who will listen to this as a podcast. Sure. What can we do in our communities? Bear in mind, you know, we're diverse. You're in London. I'm all the way out in Herefordshire in a tiny little town where I don't think I see one black face from you know one week to the next let alone any sort of Indian Asian <laughs> with literally one homogenous kind of thing out here yeah. um so what can we do where we are how do we begin to unpick this and make it better it's really hard I mean I think I don't think there's any quick solution or any straightforward or simple thing I mean one of the things I'm committed to and which is difficult but I think I am committed to it is is you know how how do we cultivate spaces in which people can be honest? Because I think our world <laughs> is becoming less and less honest. That we we're, we're creating places and spaces in which people can't be true to themselves. Um, and this is one of the problems I have with cancel culture. And I've been part of it on both sides. You know, I'm someone who has been cancelled, and equally someone who has been part of that mob to try and cancel people. But it's it doesn't work because eventually all you have are people who hold the same views but hold them privately, you know? Um, and I think one of the things we really need is, is to, to cultivate honest space. How, how do we enable people to say, you know, oh, this, this, is, this is what I'm scared of and this is when I've been hurt. And oh, wow, you know, the same thing hurts you and makes you feel scared too. You know, how do we bond over that? Or this is, this is a grief or a worry that I carry. And you know, how do we enable ourselves to listen to other people's griefs and worries? Because the reality is the only way we can make any progress is by becoming more intimate with each other. You know, and we're in a society and a culture um, which is, you know, all the all the bandages and plasters we've used for our kind of societal wounds for so long are not sticking anymore. And it's becoming more and more clear. Um, you know, those of us who are <laughs> you know, committed to some kind of anti-capitalist vision, even if we're part of it, can see that also falling apart. Um, you know, everything is really fragile at the moment. Um, and we're gonna need each other, whether we like it or not. And I think that this, this idea that we can somehow keep going it alone um, is laughable to me. Um, so, you know, people, people need to get to know their neighbors and we need to be able to be honest about what, what it is like to live side by side with people. You know, I have, I live in an area where I know other clergy, if they were living here, wouldn't, wouldn't kind of walk around at night. You know, I mean, this area is really interesting. People go to the loo in the street. Um, people are selling sex, drugs, all sorts. Um, someone had their hand chopped off the other day. I, drug dealers come and speak to you. I mean, it's a really interesting space. I luckily, thank God, because of my upbringing, feel fairly safe here. I don't, I'm not worried about it. And I have a dog who I'll have to walk later and I'll walk him through the local park and there'll be, you know, groups of um, hooded young people just sat on the benches smoking weed. That's what they do. They don't threaten me. Um, but every now and again, I see myself internally thinking, gosh, do I want to go through that park? And do I want to take a different route home because I can avoid these people? And sometimes I deliberately walk past that bench or walk through that, that park. Um, and I'm aware that there's a gender dynamic in which I feel safe doing that at night. 
But I think one of the things I have to be committed to is not creating a distance between me and the, and the community that I live in. Because as soon as I do that, you know, I have at the moment no, no real reason to fear these people. Um, but as soon as I create a distance between me and them, that intimacy, which is so important, is gone. And it's gone for no real good reason. Um, and I think sometimes small things like saying good morning to people or just smiling at people as you walk past them or holding a door open for someone enables us to cultivate that sense of closeness, um, you know, without which we can't live, you know? And I know that closeness and intimacy has been the cause of death for us in this recent time, but we can't stay in that mode forever. Um, so how do we, how do we grow closer? Um, which I think is one of the things the gospel wants us to do. You know, one of the things I think Jesus shows us that actually sometimes our intimacy with one another can cost us our lives. Um, but the opposite can't save the world. And that's kind of what the whole incarnation, you know, the whole Jesus being born in Bethlehem thing is about. Like God, God had to come close and that made God vulnerable. <laughs> um, but there was no other way for salvation to take place. And I think... Yeah, I, th I think we have to go against some of our fears at the moment. Um, is, is, is this where, and I, this is be my last question, and we'll open it up. So if anyone's got any questions, um, you know, we'll come to you and give you a chance to, to speak with Jarrell. Um, is, is this where the grace element of the book comes in, particularly within our church communities? And you talk a lot about grace in a way that I probably have never heard grace spoken about so the the byline is the the famine of grace and then you've got a chapter in there called grace crucified so is this where we've gone wrong have we lost the ability to know understand and show grace to each other is that what we need to begin to get back I think so I think grace I think the biggest problem with grace is that we all think we know what we mean when we talk about it and we don't but, the, but because that's the assumption, it hasn't been looked at as one of our key doctrines enough. Um, and when we've looked, when we've spoken about grace, we've immediately jumped to the cross. Um, and one of my big things is church history, and I love patristics, so the, the writings of the church fathers and mothers. Um, and the thing that you discover is that for them, um, yeah, the cross is significant and it's important, but actually the cross makes no sense without looking at the birth of Christ. <laughs> Um, and one thing that one of my, my, my favorite church fathers does, um, Athanasius of Alexandria, um, who's a really fascinating person and every Christian should read his work on the incarnation. It's mind blowing and it's a very simple read. But one of the things that Athanasius says is that God um, creates the world leaving nothing barren of his image. And I thought, if that's true, you know, and if, if Athanasius got that in the fourth century, that God creates the world leaving nothing barren of God's image, then surely that includes the LGBTQ plus community. How can it not? Um, and the thing that Athanasius does is he takes the birth of Christ and the crucifixion of Christ, and he sees the whole thing, the whole of Jesus's life as Christ's incarnation. So Jesus becomes most fully himself, not just at birth, but also on the cross and also in the resurrection. Um, and so I think grace only makes sense when you also look at what the birth of Christ has to say about grace. So it is, it is something that we don't look at enough. Um, because I think if we took grace seriously, we would never have had the conversations we've had to have about the ordination of women to the priesthood and the episcopate. We would not 
have to have the debate we're having about sexuality and marriage at the moment, you know, ecumenical relations would sort themselves out because if, if God is fundamentally about grace, there's almost nothing more to say, you know, we have no reason to not love each other and to get on with it. It means that all, all of our divisions are about us. Yeah. You know, they're not, they're not actually theological because they can't be, you know, division within Christianity makes no sense at all. Exclusion no, makes no ab sense. Absolutely. I... Um, you know, and what people will accuse me of saying is that therefore anything goes, which is not the same thing. Right. I'm saying actually the one thing that doesn't go is hatred. You know, yeah. actually. Um, yeah, so no, that's so true. Absolutely. Let's let's throw it open because I'm I'm hoping that our friends watching have got a question or a comment or a thing that you want to say. You can wave at me or send a message to Rachel and she'll unmute you. Rachel's doing all the uh, all the techie stuff because I'm useless at that. I can talk to people, but I can't. Uh, but I can't do anything techno uh, wise. Um, what I will do is just to bring you in. I'll say your first name, but let me know if you want that to be edited out of the podcast. So, um, Joshua, you've got a question. Uh, thank you, Joel. It was really, really good sort of hearing from you tonight, and also beginning meaning your book as well. Um, you mentioned something about tension, and I suppose with all the different identities, those being in competition with each other in various spaces at in various times. Just want to know: are, are there ever moments where that tension is alleviated, and is that even something to seek? Because I'm assuming that you know these tensions will be with us. Um, you represent a lot of the identities I have. Um, I assume they're going to be with us for the majority of our life. Um, but just if there are those kind of moments of oases that, you know, alleviate us from, the, from that tension. Yeah. Um, I don't think there are many moments. I think the tension is something that we will always live with and that we will kind of... I mean, one of the things people often say to me is, how do you reconcile these various parts of your identity? And I hate the question of reconciliation. Um, no one's asked it yet, but if they were going to, they shouldn't. <laughs> so I never, know, I never know what people mean by this reconciliation thing. I, I don't think I believe in reconciliation generally either in terms of, you know, this sense of everything just being sorted out. So I think there's tensions in identity naturally, um, if we're honest about identities. Um, and I've never, I've never kind of made peace with all these different parts of me. They are, you know, complicated and messy. And I think that's part of life as well. Um, I think the one place, if I, if I felt, you know, you mentioned Oasis, if I felt a place of Oasis, it's in times of prayer, I think. And definitely not prayer in church. You know, it's, it's the kind of me and God time um, that I find most freeing and most important when I can kind of, be before God as me and I don't have to wear this kind of mask that is acceptable to other people. I'm like, you know, um, I'm this human, shitty, broken person doing my best as I can, you know, journeying with a God who, you know, was human <laughs> um, in Christ and equally knows something of brokenness as well. Um, and for me, that's the most those are moments of oasis because I don't have to play the games that we have to play in life <laughs> so much. And I don't have to wear the mask that other people need us to wear. Um, but cultivating that, I think, is hard. 
because we're, we're taught to be to be fake with god i think yeah you know um so yeah i hope that kind of answers it a bit no certainly does thank you rachel have you got something yes i do I was interested where you talk about in Genesis how God saw what was created and declared it good and he declared it good not perfect can you talk a little bit more about that yeah hmm. sure sure um I wish I wish some days that I was a Hebrew scholar I have no Hebrew I've never done any Hebrew in my life um I was pushed down the Greek roots I know nothing about how to really interpret the Old Testament I rely on friends who can do that for me um but one of the things I do remember someone saying is you know the Genesis language is, is important in terms of that difference between good and perfect. And that one of the things we have in Revelation is this sense of a new heaven and new earth. And you can only have a new thing if something old has gone. Um, and I, I think there's something important for me in terms of holding on to, you know, when I look at the world as it is, um, I think so often I'm looking for perfection, you know, and I don't see that anywhere. But what I do see is goodness, which is the same thing God saw. You know, and in me, I don't see perfection, but I do see goodness. Um, and I think there's, there's something that's really important in that slight nuance that actually we're in a good, not perfect time. And actually the new heaven, new earth thing means that, you know, we don't get to the new Jerusalem without, without this completely passing away. And that means we, we work as much as possible for the goodness to be gooder. Um, but actually perfection is probably not something we're going to see this side of heaven and so one of the things that that leads me also to talk about the abolition of the church language because i think i don't know i i struggle with a lot of the i love catholic theology on the whole the the one bit of catholic theology i really detest is it's kind of mystical theology around the church because it, it only sees the church as this perfect thing and it's almost no surprise um that the roman catholic church in particular has dealt with clerical abuse so badly because it, it does, you know, I think this mystical theology about the body of the church affects how you take criticism of the institution. Um, and so for me, yeah, that, that sense of good not being perfect was quite important to pick up on. Um, and it's something I kind of keep pondering. Thank you. Any other thoughts? comments sig have you got something oh and dominic let's come to sigrin first and then i'll come to dominic uh, thanks so much gerald I, I really enjoyed reading your book and sort of uh, reading that on the back of some of the sort of anti-racist books i've been reading um sort of the the question you, you quote in in sort of the chapter i'm tired of this church with, with the sentiment i can completely identify with um on a number of levels but it's really challenged me when you when you quote First Corinthians about um, we're all one baptized into one body and it's one spirit and then sort of talking about the different body parts um, you know the eye cannot say to the hand I have no need of you and I think we're very good at, at quoting that that bible verse um, but how do we actually put that in practice I think that's a difficulty it's sort of I think we understand it in our brains but how can we live that out in a church where we see racism sexism homophobia on a daily basis yes and ableism of course of course of course um yeah i think it's definitely something that we're, we're good at quoting and haven't thought enough about to be honest um 
I don't know if I, if I know how we do that. It's difficult. I think one of the things, it's such a pious thing and I hate saying it. If I heard someone else say this, I would roll my eyes. So I'm surprised that I'm saying it. But um, I do think, I do think we've neglected often the value of prayer in actually enabling us to become the kind of people we need to be. And I, and I don't mean those of us who face, you know, I don't mean primarily those of us who face marginalization and oppression within the church and prejudice, but I do mean a lot of, I think, our church leaders and a lot of people who um, are in positions of authority. Um, and sometimes when I hear people say things that are either homophobic or racist as Christians, I'm surprised I'm saying this, but I do mean it. I do, I do sometimes in my head ask, you know, do you actually pray? Because I, I'm, I don't think that this could come from a praying person. Because for me, my, my own experience in prayer is that I'm so confronted with my own shortcomings that it is the place in which I think I deal with the bit of me that is um, that has the capacity to be hateful, that has the capacity to malign, to, to be unloving, you know, um, it, it's in that space that I work out why I feel the way I do about certain people and about certain things. Um, and I just, I just wonder sometimes whether we, we misunderstood the power of prayer um, and actually whether we're, particularly in the West, because I spend a lot of time thinking about Eastern Christianity, in, in the West we've lost this whole sense of um, what prayer can actually do for us psychologically, for our, our actual bodies. Um, and how it literally can change how we how we how we see the world and how we see ourselves. Um, and so I think I think I think it's an important thing for us to think about. You know, how do we value those who are different to us in the body of Christ? I think I think my my problem with the Western Church is so much of what we do relies on us. So you know, we have LLF, and we're meant to go through this process. And apparently, you know, the end, at the end of this process, lots of people who hate us are going to love us because they've sat in a room and they've, they've looked at PowerPoints and they've done the work. And I'm, I'm just a bit like, no, actually the thing that's gonna make you love me is God telling you that you need to, and that actually God convicting you um, enough that you're able to see the image of God in me. A PowerPoint can't do that for you. <laughs> a small group discussion is not gonna do that for you. Um, that's gonna happen through a process of encounter with God. Um, and I think, I think we don't talk about that reality enough you know, um, yeah, I've put, I've talked LLF down a lot tonight and I shouldn't because it might work for some people, but. Let's <laughs> hope. Well, it, it might, but it's not beyond, you know, criticism, is it? Not it's like true. anything else, really. Oh, no, it's true. <laughs> Dominic, let's come to you. You have a, I don't know if you've got a question or a comment or something, unmute and speak forth. <laughs> Thank you so much. Um, and it's a, my name's Dominic, I'm from London. It's a real privilege to meet you, Father Gerald. And um, first, I just want to say a massive thank you because you're, deep, you're a deeply inspiring um, uh, gentleman and you're clearly very academically and emotionally bright. And it's just lovely to be part of this family thank and you. have people like you who are so um, loving and inspiring. And I, I really feel that, so thank you so much. And I, I knew this would be inspirational when I saw the picture of you and what this was all about. So I'm privileged to be here. And sorry, I was a little bit late. I was on another meeting. I guess, I guess for me, my journey is, um, uh, you know, how, 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 how do I, as Dominic, how do I, how do I exist being a very happy, 
a gay man, happy in myself, happy with who I am, with uh, how that conflicts with, with the Bible and what's in the scriptures. Like, you know, Leviticus, thou must not lie with another man. I haven't, I'm doing a Bible study at the moment. It's just one thing that I haven't managed to process fine, fine. About where, 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 where I sit with that. And, and you know, I've, I've heard people who are sort of very rational. In fact, he, he's, a, he's a, um, um, a, a Buddhist who's, who, who I was talking to, who said, well, when we look at the Bible, it was not written by God. It was written by men who were inspired by God, as I understand it. I don't think I don't think women contributed. I don't think, um, and therefore, you know, it, it's open to risk of subconscious bias, prejudice. What you know, what 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 what's the truth? Is it the truth? Is there is there is there, is there a mixture of the truth? How do we how how do we sit comfortably with it and and continue to love ourselves and feel and feel valued and loved by, by cool. God? <laughs> Sorry if that's too, too big a question. Oh, no, no, it's, it's perfect. I'm dealing with a Jack Russell here who's desperate to say hi, so I'm sorry. Hello. But if I don't do this, he won't come. Seb, come on. Come. come. Oh. Well, while you're talking to the dog, I'll, I'll just chuck in a little plug for mine and Rachel's podcast called When the Rainbow Appears, um, which answers quite a lot of what you've just spoken about. So um, I was going to do that at the end, but this seems like the best opportunity to uh, encourage people to listen to when the rainbow appears which is a six month uh, six month six week uh lgbt theology course on a podcast anyway Jarrell, you can answer now properly rather than me plugging my own stuff <laughs> you want a squeaky ball this is a nightmare anyway um i think the first thing i would say is that we're really discovering lots of things about the we're still discovering things about the bible so you know um People of all genders have contributed in many ways, in part, in part by, by just being there. So, you know, uh, Mary Magdalene contributes a lot in terms of being there for the resurrection and giving us that record. But also um, a friend of mine who's a scholar, um, she's at Birmingham University, but based in the States, did a really interesting bit of research the other day and discovered essentially that Mark's gospel was written by a slave. It was written by an enslaved scribe. And we don't know the gender of that scribe, but, you know, the, the scriptures have been put together by all kinds of people in reality. Um, and then the next thing I would say, I think, is that I go back to kind of looking at the body again and giving attention to, to flesh, because I think the problem I have had with Christianity for a long time is that truth has become for us a text, you know? And I take the Bible seriously, I don't take it literally. Um, but the reality is that Christian truth isn't a text, it's actually a person. And that person is Jesus Christ. Um, and so for me, no matter what the text says, the person I have to pay the most attention to is, is Jesus and what he says and doesn't say. Um, and that has to carry more weight for me because he's God made flesh, right? So that, that counts for a lot. Um, and I go back again to the prayer thing that actually, you know, as Christians, if we believe um, that Jesus exists eternally um, and that Jesus is still speaking to us today then actually what what is Jesus saying to the church now you know um, and actually the, the place in which we're going to hear that is in our prayer I think um, you know and and what 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 does Jesus say to you um, in your prayer you know and actually why why is what Jesus says to Dominic in 2021 any less powerful than what Jesus says to Paul in AD 60, whatever. You know, I think <laughs> we have to take that seriously, but if, if Christ is speaking, 
Um, and if Christ is Christ, then this, this kind of privilege we give to scripture that we don't give to our own hearts worries me a bit, you know? Um, and the whole idea of a canon of scripture, which is, you know, books that are put together out of which many things were left, um, is also something that I think in terms of scholarship, the more you look at the history of that, the more you begin to question, you know? Um, so I would say, I would say there's, there's a lot that God is saying to you, which, which perhaps through a process of discernment ought to be given the, the weight of scripture, because if it's coming from Christ, you ought to listen to it, you know? Um, and the way in which we discern whether it's truly from God or not is, is we look at the person of Jesus in scripture and we say, well, does this, does this sit with what Jesus appears to be like in scripture, you know? Um, and if it, if it doesn't, then perhaps you need to ask questions, but actually, um, if it does, you know? Um, one thing that Rowan Williams says, which I have loved, um, is that for all we know, we could still be the early church. And you know, one of the things I love about speaking to friends in the East is actually being 2021 years old doesn't mean anything because they have a much longer memory and a much longer um, sense of time, which we have no real alertness to um, in the West, I think. That's a really good statement. I'd never heard that before. Mm -hmm. That's fantastic. And Owen's right. How do we know? Well, no, he's absolutely right. Rowan Williams is right on about on a lot of things, it has yeah. to be said. So, you know, good, good, good for him, good chap. Kathy, you had your hand up. Do you do you have a question or comment or anything? If you do, unmute and speak forth. Hello. Hi. Hi. Hi, yeah. Um, I'm really enjoying listening to you. I'm sorry, I was quite late because I thought it started later. Um, I just have a question. So forgive me if you've answered this partly already um, I listened to you speak at the student Christian movement earlier in the year and found that really amazing that prophetic imagination talk and I just have a question around how um, you kind of have grace with the parts of the church that are pushing you um, out and how you kind of um, balance the idea of when you talk and when you stay silent when you call it out and when you think this is um, you know I'm not likely to be heard in this space um, and I think for all of us with marginalised identities, that is probably quite a wide um, question for us. So basically, it is around how you deal with being excluded mm. by church. Of course. Of course. I mean, that is a really tough one. That is a really tough one. I think um, I would say the one thing, so I, would, I think I would say, and I want to be really clear, that I think the time for showing grace to those who oppress and those who marginalize and those who discriminate, you know, I, I definitely don't mean grace in that sense. I think, I think we have to be um, a bit firmer in our pushback actually um, on some of that stuff, because, you know, one of the things I was saying earlier is that a lot of it doesn't make sense. And therefore, um, you know, we mustn't entertain other people's hatred. Um, so one of the things I do now, for example, is, you know, I mean, you could not get me to defend my identity to someone in person, I mean, it's just not going to happen. It's not going to. I couldn't. Um, there, there's no one that I could kind of sit down and have a conversation with if that conversation involved me having to say why it is okay for me to be black, gay, and Christian. I just couldn't do it. Um, and so the one thing the book isn't doing, I think, is it's not. You know, I completely ignore some of the clubber passages because of that. 
you know, I'm, I'm just not having that conversation. I'm not going there because other books do that, you know. Um, and I think sometimes we have to do that. We have to say to people, you know, Google does exist. Um, you know, the same way I've had to study the scriptures to understand my own life, you also need to go and study scripture. Um, there are things that you can read and people you can talk to. It doesn't always have to be us. Um, and there are spaces that I will just remove myself from because I'm like, actually, I don't have to be here anymore and I don't have to do this. And this is why I left Methodism. You know, I was a Methodist minister for seven years um, and I got to the point where I was like, actually, I'm a free person. Um, if this church doesn't want to love me, I'm out. Um, you know, and I, and I have a, a huge sense of freedom knowing that I've walked out of Methodism and should the time come that I need to do the same thing from the Church of England, I will because it's not going to cost me my life <laughs> and it's not going to cost me my sanity, you know, been there, um, not doing it. And I think we, we all sometimes need to be reminded of the freedom that we have to say enough, you know, um, and sometimes that's friends, sometimes it's family, sometimes it's work, um, sometimes it's communities that have given us a lot, but which won't love us the way they need to. And you know, there might come a point where we, we can't stay. Um, so I would say, I, I definitely don't think people ought to be showing too much grace to those who don't, who don't show that grace back, you know, which is hard. And I also have people who talk to me and say, you know, for whom I know walking away from, from a friendship or from a family or from a church community would mean losing everything because it's the one thing they have. You know, I'm walking with someone past you at the moment who worships in a place that I don't think means them any good, um, but actually can't leave. You know, they have their own reasons and I get it. And I, I, I did say to them, I, I understand, you know, but should the time come when you need to, then you should. But they can't because it's, it's, you know, they're far from home. It's the one place where they feel a sense of belonging, but actually the place that they know um, that would cause them great harm if they were true to who they were. Um, but that's a compromise I think we all make for time as well. It's tough. Mm. Mm. It's, 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 it's tough out there in so many different situations, isn't it? No matter what your identity or, or intersectionality of identities, that's such a buzzword at the moment, but it's so true. I think we've all got it. We've all got it tough in different ways. And I think maybe what I'm getting from reading the book and maybe by the time I've got to it I'll, I'll have it all together well, it is about this you know kind of understanding what what grace really is and how we can essentially bump along together a bit and to stop striving as we talked about earlier for the perfect when good is what God wanted it to be exactly exactly and the thing about grace is that you know, this will be my last word in a way. Um, grace means that God meets us where we are. And so actually we don't need to be any further down the journey. Um, we don't have to have, you know, recovered from our wounds or our hurts. We don't have to have made sense of it all. Um, you know, God, God is with us where we are on this journey. It's not about getting to some destination where grace, grace dwells, you know. Um, that's the other thing the incarnation is about. It's about, it's about God saying, I'm alongside you in this you know this manger full of cow dung where i have no bed <laughs> you know there's something there's something quite powerful about that literal image of you know god god joining us on this journey in a very imperfect place 
you know yeah. the stable was good it wasn't perfect <laughs> yeah exactly we'll leave it there the stable was good it wasn't perfect that's fantastic Gerald thank you so much for joining us thank you everyone who's uh, who's joined in tonight who's asked questions who's watched and listened thank you so much for doing that if you're listening to this on the podcast again thank you for for tuning in and listening we'll let you know when the next one uh, is going to be up I'm going to do another little plug for the when the rainbow appears podcast which is a six-week LGBT theology course uh, on wherever you get your podcasts, you will find it and then you can uh, listen to what Rachel and I have to say. Thank you again to Jarrell for joining me and guys, we will catch up with you next time.